Hello and welcome to Tyranny Today. We are recording this on March 15th, 2023. As you may remember, last week I compared the two fault lines of Cold War II to theater. On a personal note, my father was an actor specializing in Shakespeare and in romantics, so theater stage and backstage belong to my earliest childhood memories. And I thought that theater, as a metaphor, fits the evolution of geopolitical roles that various states are playing in the unfolding conflict. As the freedom of free market flows is receding into the corner of our pre-COVID memory, it is the states, rather than private capital generators and distributors, that are the key actors now. We, the proponents of Western values, lost the opportunity of warm peace that gave us the freedom of the three decades between 1991 and 2022. We owe this defeat to our own myopia and our reluctance to see that for the revanchist, revisionist powers, it was not an era of warm peace, but rather cold peace, an era to plot a revenge by using our openness and our naivete that the world could somehow be organized by a set of rules that we in the West determine. We consider these rules as universal, and we set the decoration in this theater as far back as 1945. These decorations are now being ripped off by the villains that have come to dominate the stage. Last week, I drew some quite surprising parallels between the main show in East Asia and the supporting show in Eastern Europe. On both stages, we have a villain and a victim, a savior and those who support the victim and the villain. Today, I would like to round off the parade of the main characters by reviewing the roles of some minor players, or sometimes not that minor, in both the European and Asian theater. Minor does not mean insignificant. So just to remind you, in addition to the roles of the aggressor or the villain, if you like, the victim, the savior, we selected the roles of the rich uncle, the neurotic brother, and the villain's ally. The neurotic brother is the closest ally that the victim could find, but together they need support from the rich uncle, who unfortunately has some unsavory past and is not trusted by the victim's brother. In the European theater, Russia is the villain, Ukraine is the victim, the US is the savior, Germany is the rich uncle, Poland the neurotic brother, and China plays the role of the villain's main ally. In Asia, it is China who is the aggressor, Taiwan is the victim, the US is the savior, Japan is the rich uncle, South Korea is the neurotic brother, and Russia appears there as the villain's main ally. So let us now reveal some other key players who appear on the stage in Act 2. When the curtain rises, we are introduced to a new character, a sea lion. Have you ever tried to catch a sea lion? It ain't easy. Sea lion is slippery, agile, elusive. More importantly, it lives in water. If you are a land creature, as all primates are, you are not necessarily very capable in water dealing with marine creatures, even if you're a great swimmer or a diver. Once, while I was diving in Galapagos, a shoal of young sea lions swam up to me and began dancing around in their trademark geometric elastic agility. 
a, a youngster would approach me to tease me and look at me straight into the eye. And of course, I couldn't resist the temptation and try to touch them. But they were so fast, slick and elusive that there was no chance I could catch them. Only when I scrambled back onto the beach could I touch one of the young sea lions basking in the afternoon sun. On land, his movements were ungainly, and by the way, he smelled very fishy. Continental powers, just like humans, are not comfortable with what lives in water and by water. Russia, a continental power par excellence, with no access to our emotions, has for 200 years faced a dilemma with the United Kingdom, which plays a role of a sea lion. A sea lion that engaged in enhanced balancing on the continent, having been invaded and populated by continental Celts, Romans, Angles, and Saxons, Vikings, and finally Normans, the Isles eventually solidified its sense of otherness during the 100-year war with France, back then the largest continental power. Russia entered the European stage belatedly in the 18th century by beating Sweden and swallowing a large chunk of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth that included the eastern part of Ukraine. Russia's forceful entry into the European politics has been a catastrophe for Central Europe and a corrupting influence on Western European thought leadership from Voltaire to Angela Merkel. For Russia, Europe would be a better place if Moscow could simply control the continent via the cupidity of the elites in Berlin and Paris, without the pesky Britain, an island with a track record of using its maritime power to thwart any continental attempt at dominance, whether Napoleonic, Hitlerian, or Stalinist. Britain is like that dominant male sea lion basking in shallow waters offshore, overlooking its harem of females reclining on the beach. You know you can't mess around with that bull. Looking across from the European plains that it seeks to dominate, Russia the villain is covetous, envious of all these females. In Russia's vision of Eurasia from Lisbon to Vladivostok, so elegantly proffered by Alexander Dugin and more relevant writers published in Russia of Globalne Politike, there is no room for the perfidy of offshore Albion. Note that today, it is the UK that does the bulk of military training for the victims' troops from Ukraine. And it is the UK that provides all kinds of equipment to the victim, including the type of equipment that the US, for strategic reasons, is not ready to ship. The sea lion is elusive, nimble, and mobile. It's hard to corner him from the immobility of the continent. So now, what about the Pacific theater? Here, the jarring role of a male sea lion is played by Australia, once the historic outpost of Britain in this region and now the key member of Quad and AUKUS, expanding the submarine reach of its partners. Beijing is very unhappy with Australia because of the failure of its considerable efforts during the last decade to corrupt the political class down under. These attempts were eventually exposed and cracked down on by the introduction of Espionage and Foreign Interference Act in Australia in 2018. In retaliation in 2020, the villain unleashed a trade war, punishing Australia by banning imports of grains, coal, seafood, and wine. But Australia is a sea lion and you can't easily catch it. Australian exporters found alternative markets for all these products in Canberra, continued to hold the villain by the balls, 
which was possible because of Beijing's dependence on high-quality iron ore shipped from Pilbara region in Western Australia. This dependency may end one day as China is trying to develop Simandu, a landlocked iron ore project in Guinea, West Africa. But until then, the villain has no choice but to play nice with the sea lion. Acting is one thing, speaking is another, though. Now that the sea lion has decided to develop a fleet of nuclear submarines, China has not shied away from threatening the country of nuclear Armageddon. The oceanic distance that separates the sea lion from the aggressor does not entirely insulate it from an attack, as both Britain and Australia learned during the Second World War. British and Allied pilots fought aerial battles over England in 1940, and German air raids devastated several British cities. Likewise, Darwin and several other areas in coastal Australia suffered Japanese attacks, but neither country was subjugated by a hostile power, and both thrived on the liberal order reliant on open oceans and free trade ever since. These elusive sea lions pose an eternal dilemma to continental villains. They refuse to bend to the villain's will, its V-2 missiles, or its economic coercion. Okay, what about other key roles in this theater play? So next we have kingpins. Kingpins. They are a permanent future in the play, not always in the spotlight, but omnipresent in the background at the very least. Kingpins are tricky, as they function as pivots. They swivel opportunistically to serve their own interest. They can't really be trusted, but that's precisely why they are courted by all the other major players in the drama. That is what makes them unique. Sometimes the kingpin appears to side with the aggressor, sometimes with the savior and its allies. The kingpin straddles the areas of key strategic importance, and it can't be ignored. Its size, too, makes it a key player on their respective stages. Realism calls for some form of accommodation to extract the maximum benefit of those selected interests that are aligned with Savior's interest, even though Kingpin's self-styled, unabashedly independent rhetoric can sometimes be infuriating and a full partnership based on trust is probably unattainable. In Europe, the role of the Kingpin is played by Turkey. Following the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, the Kemalist Turkey was initially a neutral state. It was only after World War II when Soviet Foreign Minister Molotov demanded access to Bosphorus and Dardanelles Straits that Turkey opted to secure a seat at NATO. But several decades later, this form of Kemalism aligned with the West began to outlive its shelf life. It began to unravel for real during the presidency of Turgut Özal and later with the rise of AKP and Recep Erdogan's rule. This period coincided with the end of Turkey's European dreams. Internally, the country became increasingly authoritarian, and, as it's often the case, the foreign policy corollary of domestic liberalism was revisionism. Ankara believes that the Lausanne Treaty of 1923, which left the islands of Aegean Sea under jurisdiction of Greece, is inherently unfair, imposing a tight corset on Turkey's coastline. The Lausanne Treaty will celebrate its 100th anniversary in July this year and plenty of conspiracy theories circulate around how it was signed. It is almost forgotten that it was an improvement for Turkey in comparison to the Treaty of Sevres, which had foreseen a much more radical partitioning of the Ottoman Empire. Since the villains' invasion of Ukraine last year, Turkey has been engaged in a swirling dervish diplomacy, 
dabbling in negotiations, maintaining close contact with the aggressor, and promising more drones to the victim. We will not know its future trajectory, at least until after the national elections this spring, although the deep divisions within the Turkish opposition do not portend for large-scale changes. India plays a similarly hypocritical role in Asia. While Turkey has the largest population in Europe, India has the largest population in the world. Sorry, China. I know, this factoid must hurt. On the one hand, the Kingping benefits from Savior's military support, especially in high-altitude areas, where a separate fault line between the Kingping and the villain, unrelated to the victim's plight, has widened in recent years. And India's high-tech strategy has developed an over-reliance on Taiwanese hardware, as New Delhi is trying to incentivize its considerable engineering prowess to replicate the victim's success in semiconductor manufacturing. On the other hand, however, the Kingping is adamant that in the case of Taiwan contingency, it will be happy to fight to the lost American soldier. Naturally, Kingpins enjoy being courted. To bring India into default, rich uncle, that is Shinzo Abe's administration, invented the term Indo-Pacific, much to Beijing's irritation. In Asia, the relationship between the rich uncle and the kingpin is certainly much better than the corresponding relations between Germany and Turkey in Europe. But kingpins in both theaters have a strong financial relation to the rich uncle. The large Turkish diaspora in Germany guarantees that the financial flows between the two countries in the form of remittances average over $150 million annually. I once flew out of a small regional airport in Anatolia, Turkey, and at the gate, I was surrounded by a significant group of kerchiefed conservative Muslim women. It surprised me that they all carried German passports, but it shouldn't have surprised me. In Asia, the kingpin also benefits from the rich uncle's largesse, though in a different way. Japan is the largest investor in India, a builder of its new railway lines and of its subways. And the proverbial Mrs. Watanabe enjoys putting her savings into high interest rate treasury bonds issued by New Delhi. She trusts them because of what she hears from one of her grandsons who works for a large Japanese kaisha and invests capital and technology into the kingpin's growth. It's a real story and not a unique one, by the way. There are other similarities between the two kingpins in their respective theaters and their large pan-regional ambitions. First, Turkey sees itself as a natural champion of the Turkic belt from Central Asia to Northern Cyprus, if not the Balkans, Yakutia, and Xinjiang. These initiatives are readily welcomed by the likes of Kazakhstan, which would otherwise remain squeezed between the two villains, the European one and the Asian one. New Delhi's ambitions are even larger. India sees itself as the champion of the global south. This is broadly accepted and even encouraged by the savior and its allies, as New Delhi offers an ideological alternative to the aggressor next door. Like Turkey, India is suffering from the flu of illiberalism, but its system is still closer to ours than the corrosive model promoted in the global south by the villains. There is another striking parallel between the two kingpins, is the concept of strategic autonomy. This term surfaced in the French geopolitical thinking with de Gaulle, and Macron tried to dust it off several years ago, dissing NATO as brain-dead and hailing the advent of a separate European security initiative. Alas, these empty slogans died a painful death on the killing fields of Ukraine. In Turkey's case, the notion of strategic autonomy 
stems from the ideas developed by the country's former foreign minister, Ahmed Davutoglu, who back in the year 2000 published his seminal work, Strategic Depth. And it's not an academic pursuit only. Turkey has used its relations with both aggressors, Russia and China, to its advantage, flagging its pivotal role vis-a-vis -vis the savior. India's strategic autonomy is the favorite brainchild of its current Ministry of External Affairs, Dr. Jay Shankar. He aggressively defends India's right to idiosyncrasy, whereby the country meets its specific allies in the conflict with Asia's aggressor, but without paying the price by abandoning its long-standing romanticized attachment to Europe's aggressor. As a major profiteer from the war, Dr. Jay Shankar is quick to point out Western hypocrisy in terms of its trade connections to Russia. Still, Dr. Jay Shankar's vociferous defense of India's strategic autonomy comes across as strident and self-serving. It's almost as if New Delhi was blind to the cost of India's image in the West. And it's a shame, since with the possible exception of the British sea lion, Westerners do not know India very well, and for a long time used to hold all sorts of misguidedly romantic ideas about the land of meditative elation, its Eastern philosophy, eternal mindfulness, perfected non-duality, and liberated bliss of the world's largest democracy. To those who still glance naively at the kingpin, I say, just read up more on Hindutva nationalism. <laughs> the next role in our theater play is the one of a sidekick. In the European theater, this is a part played by Belarus. In the Asian theater, it is North Korea. The sidekick functions predominantly as a buffer state and is economically completely dependent on the villain, but it has maintained some notional sovereignty. In fact, its existence as a separate state is a useful element of the aggressor's strategic deniability. When Lukashenko, a Belarusian strongman of 29 years, sent masses of Middle Eastern migrants into the border with the EU, Moscow could claim, it is not us. And when Kim Jong-un tests ballistic missiles over Japan, Beijing is amused, but takes no responsibility. In fact, the villain is overjoyed, telegraphing to the West. Be nice to us, and maybe we can do something about it. Obviously, neither sidekick would survive for long without the lifeline provided by the aggressor. Both dictatorships are paranoid and dangerous. Lukashenko murdered strings of political opponents back in 1999 and has since cracked down on protests on the occasion of three successive electoral cycles. Meanwhile, Kim Jong-un turned his population into an undifferentiated mass of tamed pets. While Lukashenko used international crisis stirred up by the villain as opportunities to burnish his peace credentials, whether after the aggressor's invasion of Georgia in 2008 or its initial invasion of Ukraine in 2014, King Jong-un uses its nuclear arsenal as an attention-seeking tool, extracting goodwill from South Korea's left or from the photo-op and Nobel Prize-craving Donald Trump. Interestingly, both sidekicks remain active in the opposing theaters. North Korea has been accused of providing military equipment to Russia, while Lukashenko visited Beijing last week to the bang of 21-gun salute on Tiananmen Square. Xinhua Agency even stated that China and Belarus are the joint guarantors of international justice. Yeah, right. Next coming in our theater play, the cakewalks. Now, who are the cakewalks? Both geographies, 
Eastern European and Western Pacific contain an area that, due to its proximity to the aggressor, appears particularly vulnerable. In the European theater, these are the Baltic countries, while in Asia, it's the Philippines. And just like the neurotic brothers and the victims, cakewalks are fully dependent on the savior to maintain their sovereignty. Until the final integration of the Finnish and Swedish navies into NATO structures one day, the three Baltic countries are exposed to Russian hybrid subversion, interference, blackmail, and maybe less likely outright invasion. Two of the three countries are home to a significant Russian diaspora that could be leveraged by Moscow as the fifth column. For years, the Baltics relied on the military strategy of tripwire, which consisted in slowing down a potential Russian advance before Western nations could come to their rescue. But this approach was pulverized by Ukrainians' experiences in Bucha and Irpin and the subsequent kidnapping by Russia of Ukrainian children. The human cost of the passing Russian troops is simply such that ceding any territory in the defense campaign is no longer an option. Likewise, the Philippines appear highly vulnerable to regular bullying by China's Coast Guard and Navy, most recently near the disputed shoal in the Philippine Sea. The Philippines, too, is home to a significant population of Chinese origin, and the northern tip of Luzon faces the southern tip of Taiwan. Just like the entry of Finland and Sweden into NATO improves the security of the European cakewalks, the proposed return of the U.S. forces to the abandoned bases in the Philippines poses a strategic dilemma to Beijing. Life of a cakewalk is not easy, and the villain will expand considerable resources to undermine domestic politics, as Russia may recently have tried in Estonia. Expect attempts by China to destabilize the domestic situation in the Philippines. The cakewalk, the victim, and the neurotic brother are all aware of their dependence on the savior. Meanwhile, other exposed parties proved historically that it is possible to knock out the aggressor's teeth, even without the help of the savior. In the respective theaters, this is the case of Finland and Vietnam. We can call them stalwarts. Finland was attacked by the Soviet Union shortly after Stalin signed the Nazi-Soviet pact that divided the continent. Just as Soviets were busy decapitating the Ukrainian, Polish, and Baltic elites, murdering tens of thousands and displacing millions, the Red Army attacked Finland. During the Winter War, the Finns managed to maintain sovereignty despite suffering some territorial losses. Famously, they turned down the offer of help from the sea lion, the United Kingdom, pointing out the geographic impossibility of relying on a distant ally, a factoid underestimated by pre-war Czechoslovakia and Poland, whose alliances were built around such geographically exotic partners. Having emerged victorious from its wars with France and the U.S., Vietnam got embroiled in a conflict with communist China. Militarily, it was a disaster for Beijing. I had a friend in Beijing who was originally from Yunnan, China's southernmost continental province. She remembered vivid scenes from her childhood, seeing trucks full of soldiers going south, and, after a while, the same trucks going north, but this time full of body bags. Unlike these stalwarts who stand up to aggression, there is another category who do not. These are carpetbaggers. These slimy beasts are geographically closer to the savior's allies and could, on paper, support the victim against the aggressor, aligned naturally with the neurotic brother and the cakewalk. Yet, they are too self-interested to do so, and their elites understand this self-interest in purely pecuniary terms. 
they never miss an opportunity to phone on the villain. Carpetbaggers are many. In Europe is the case of Serbia and Hungary. In Asia-Pacific, it's Solomon Islands and Papua New Guinea. Why are there carpetbaggers in the first place? Sometimes it's due to neglect. Solomon Islands had no U.S. ambassador for many years. Sometimes it is because they are more valuable to the aggressors than to the savior and its allies. None of the carpetbaggers shares a border with the aggressor, and they do not feel threatened by it. Rather, they believe that they can earn something from the villain by the virtue of their strategic positioning. The carpetbaggers' geography allows for the aggressor to leapfrog over the major barrier, whether it's NATO's eastern flank in Europe or the first island chain in Asia. Yes, carpetbaggers make the belt separating them from the aggressor leapfroggable. Carpetbaggers are not a lost cause. Australia, the sea lion of the Pacific, is in full counterattack in Solomon Islands and in PNG, while the savior, the US, will at long last reopen a diplomatic sentinel in Solomon Islands. Hungary, on the other hand, may need to wait for the end of urban era. Several months ago, we devoted an entire episode on tyranny today to the reasons of Hungary's revisionism. The outcome of the war in Ukraine will carry momentous consequences for Budapest. Next in our theater play come little sissies, highly vulnerable entities that can be easily snapped out by the aggressor, sadly, with little in the way of protection that the savior or its allies can afford. In Europe, it's Moldova, and in Asia, it's Bhutan. In both countries, part of the territory is under the control of the aggressor's army. In Transnistria, the northern part of Moldova, on the border with the victim, that is Ukraine, Russia has maintained military presence since the early 1990s, tying up currently two Ukrainian brigades, just in case. Moscow has also been actively working to undermine its current pro-Romanian and pro-European president, Maya Sandu. Joe Biden recently mentioned Moldova during his speech in Warsaw, and Brussels has sent assistance to strengthen the country's institutions. But Moldova's constitutional neutrality is only as good as its security. Likewise, China's People's Revolution Army has been busy liberating several valleys in Bhutan's north, where militarized villages have been constructed for the PLA. Two years ago, China has also issued claims to the south western portion of Bhutan, known as Samdrup Chongkar district, with which it actually doesn't even share a border. What was the objective of that? Well, it was to threaten the neighboring India and the Tibetan monasteries located on Indian territory, especially Tawang, which is to the north of Samdrup Chongkar. India used to be Bhutan's protector and represented diplomatically around the world, but the aggressor's hyperactivity, especially in the last three years, has shifted gravel in the Himalayan region. So that's for the little sissies. Finally, we have the bottlenecks. These entities control the key choke points and can checkmate the villain. In Europe, this is Mediterranean Europe, with its control of access to the oceans via Bosphorus and Dardanella, Gibraltar, and the Suez Canal. To some extent, Denmark completes this role with its control of Skagdarak and Kattegat Straits that separate the Baltic from the Atlantic. In Asia, it is Indonesia and Singapore, which notionally can control Malacca and Sunda Straits. Notionally, I say, because without the Savior's Navy, neither area can be entirely choked off. Powering over the choke points are the rhizomes, large multilateral or supranational entities, European Union in Europe and ASEAN in Asia. 
These are often messy, deliberative entities subject to manifold influences and hobbled by consensual decision-making. Aggressors are trying to infiltrate them by controlling their weakest link. In Europe, it used to be Cyprus and is now Hungary. In Asian, these are Cambodia and Laos, two of China's reliable vassals, as well as Burma or Myanmar, a destitute country suffering under a civil war whose outcome will not necessarily thwart China's plans to bypass the Malacca Strait and pump Middle Eastern oil through an overland pipeline. So let me recap the roles I have reviewed today. Kingpins, sidekicks, cakewalks, stalwarts, carpetbaggers, little sissies, bottlenecks, and rhizomes. In the European theater, Turkey plays the role of the kingpin. Belarus is the villain's sidekick. The Baltic countries are treated by the villain as a cakewalk. Finland is the classic stalwart. Serbia and Hungary act as carpetbaggers. Moldova is the exposed little sissy. Mediterranean Europe plays the role of the critical bottleneck, and the EU exercises its control in a rhizomatic way. In Asia, it is India that is the kingpin. North Korea is the local villain's sidekick. The Philippines are treated as a cakewalk. Vietnam is the stalwart that stands out to the villain in its strategic isolation. Two Pacific nations, notably Solomon Islands and Papua New Guinea, are the carpet baggers ready to extract a prize from the villain's attention. Bhutan is the poor Himalayan little sissy. Singapore and Indonesia are the bottlenecks controlling the choke points, and for better or worse, ASEAN exercises rhizomatic control over the key passage from the Pacific to the Indian Ocean. So here we are. In the last two episodes, I dwelled on the theatrical side of the geography of Cold War II. We shall see over time how the roles in this drama evolve. Have a great week.